You ever experienced a moment when you're in church or some kind of churchy context where it seemed like the religious rules or the religious laws of the church or the denomination were emphasized more than Jesus's commandment to love? Ever experienced that? Maybe it happened to you. Maybe you saw it play out with somebody else. I became a follower of Jesus a long time ago. I'll tell you the whole story again some other time. Today, I want to focus on just this aspect of it. But I wasn't introduced to Jesus in a religious setting. I didn't come to Jesus in a church or in a revival or anything like that. A coworker introduced me to Jesus in an office in the law firm I was working in. And as I've explained before, I worked in a large national law firm, and I can tell you that the things of God were never, ever, ever, add about 50 more evers onto that discussed. never. But one particularly stressful day, I asked a coworker why he was so peaceful and why he was so kind in a place where literally nobody acted like that. Nobody acted in any godly fashion. And he told me about Jesus. And he told me that if I would recognize my sin and understand that Jesus on my behalf paid the penalty for my sin by going to the cross, by dying, by coming back from the dead, Jesus offered me eternal life, an eternal life connected to the God of the universe forever if I would turn from my old ways and follow Jesus as my Lord and leader. If he said that, my life would be characterized by faith and hope and most importantly, love. And when I heard that, I was all in. And I gave my life to Jesus shortly after that conversation. And then I met some church people. And I'm not just talking about people who attend church. I'm not talking about any of you guys. I didn't know you guys. I'm talking about a very specific subset of church people whom you'll meet in a moment. Apparently, they didn't get the memo about the whole love thing. They only got the rules memo. And I found that so confusing. Again, I didn't grow up around Christians. I didn't grow up in the church. The first thing I was told about Christians is they love, and then I met all these people. And as far as I could tell, the love and the peace and the grace and the joy and the forgiveness of which Jesus spoke and upon which Jesus built his ministry, and that was the thing that attracted me to him, was completely unknown to them or just not important to them. They seemed to be thoroughly committed instead to their own self-righteousness. And as far as I could tell, they felt like they were called to only serve God as his sort of unappointed, self-anointed, unelected enforcers or guardians or, or punishers. And if you've talked to me a little while, you'll know I'll say to you, I really thank God that I met Jesus before I met his church. I'm always thankful that, that God didn't let me be tempted to turn my back on Jesus when I experienced horrific behavior from so many people who claim to be his followers. When God gave me the opportunity to lead a community of Jesus followers, I made a promise and a commitment to God, and I said, I'm going to do everything in my power to make sure that nobody has that kind of bad experience that I had. And I'm pretty confident that the people here at Hammock Street would say that nobody does. Everybody has done a pretty great job exhibiting the love that Jesus told us about. 
Can you relate to that at all? It's interesting, isn't it? Have you ever seen or been the victim of a situation where some heavy-handed, self-righteous person took it upon themselves to kind of wield those various religious rules or religious laws or religious commandments so obsessively that they got in the way or were given priority over love and compassion, that love and compassion that Jesus commanded his people to model. When we read the Gospels, when we read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it becomes clear right away that Jesus actually had a major problem with people like that. And that's what we're going to talk about today. So won't you bow your heads and pray with me, and then we'll jump right in. Heavenly Father, thank you for gathering us together here this morning. Thank you for another opportunity to live here in, in the warmth and beauty of Boca Raton and environs. Thank you for this opportunity to come together here at Hammock Street, this community that you're building. God, as we take a look at your word today, we would ask that you would help it to change us, that you would draw us closer through it, that you would help us to understand how you would have us live this life. God, we thank you, and we love you, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. So I hope all of you know this. We're in part three of our series, Bystander, John and the Rabbi from Nazareth. In this series, what we're doing is, of course, is we're traveling along with the disciple John as he traveled along with Jesus. And the main thing to remember for this series is, is that John didn't choose to follow Jesus just because of faith. He didn't say, well, you just have to believe, so just believe. That's not why John followed Jesus. John followed Jesus because of what he had seen and because of what he had heard Jesus say. And it was only after seeing and hearing that he arrived at the conclusion that Jesus was indeed his Messiah. Here's what John wrote in 1 John, not the Gospel of John, but 1 John chapter 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched. He's talking about Jesus here. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. Jesus appeared. We have seen it and testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. Okay, that's what John wrote in 1 John. John wrote that Jesus was a real person who really came back from the dead. John told us that after watching Jesus, after living with Jesus, after listening to Jesus, Jesus, who was his friend, Jesus, who was his teacher, his rabbi, Jesus revealed to him that he indeed was the Messiah. And that caused John to embrace Jesus as his Savior. John said, I saw it. We all, all of us, all the disciples, we all saw it. And as a result, now we go to verse 3, we proclaim to you that we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus the Christ, the Messiah. We write this to make our joy complete. So it was later on in his life, John was an old man by this point, and that's when he wrote down his gospel. But John didn't just write down his gospel only to let us know what happened. That's, that's not why he wrote his gospel. John had an agenda. And 2,000 years later, John's agenda still stands. 
and it's directed to me, and it's directed to you. Here's his agenda. We've read this before in John 20. We proclaim, but these are written, so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. These words are written so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you will have life by the power of his name. John didn't follow Jesus just because of faith, just because you have to believe, you have to believe, you have to have faith. John followed Jesus because of what he saw and what he said. And John said, I want you all to see what I've seen. And I want you all to hear what I've heard. And I've written it in such a compelling way so you will arrive at the same conclusion that I did. Now, as we've talked about, John organized his gospel. Remember Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. John, that's John's gospel. He organized his gospel around seven events that served as seven signs. And each one of these signs pointed to Jesus' identity. Each one of these signs pointed to the fact that Jesus is who he claimed to be. They weren't just random miracles. They weren't just acts of kindness that he was doing randomly. Each of these signs was significant and pointed back to Jesus' identity as Lord and Savior of the world. Okay, so we've already looked at two of the seven signs, and today we'll be looking at the third sign. Now, for the keenly attentive among us, We'll be looking at a passage we talked about not that long ago. I preached on this passage a month ago, two months ago. And while I was preparing for this series, I actually considered skipping this sign because I kind of just talked about it a few weeks ago, but I chose not to skip it. And the reason I chose not to skip it is really twofold. First, today, we're going to be looking at this same passage. You'll recognize it in a minute, but we're going to be looking at it for a different reason than we did before. We're going to be going back and looking at this passage in order to understand how it is one of the seven signs recorded in John's gospel. And secondly, and if you read your Bible at all, you already understand this. I want everyone to be reminded, though, that unlike other written works, other books, the Bible contains for us the very word of God. And because of that, the Bible can have a different impact on us every time we read it. Have you experienced that? You read something you've read 100 times before, 10 times before, and you see it on the 11th time or the 101st time, and you go, oh, that spoke to me. I had no idea. So with that in mind, I want to press on. Now, if you haven't been with us, I'm going to recap for you. So previously on Bystander, Jesus was near the Sea of Galilee. Remember, the Sea of Galilee is in the northern part of the nation we now call Israel. He, he just performed his second sign. Remember that? Some guy, we talked about this last week, some nobleman who never met Jesus before. He came up to Jesus and he said, hey, my son is dying. I heard you're a healer. Would you come with me back to my house and heal my son? And Jesus said to the man, okay, I just healed him. Go home. Get out of here. It's fine. Right? Remember that? The nobleman was left with the same decision that Jesus' followers have to make today. Jesus said something, so now you have to trust him, even though you'd only heard about him before. That was the picture of what it would look like in our day. After hearing the eyewitness testimonies, the man trusted Jesus, and he went home, and he found his son healed. Well, after that, Jesus and the lads decided to head south for Jerusalem. Okay, they're in the Galilee region. Now they're heading south, and this is where we're going to pick up today's Bible 
study. So if you have your Bible, you're welcome to open up to John chapter 5. Tablet, phone, book, however you want to do it. I'll put the, screen, the verses on the screen as always. And here we go. So John 5, 1. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. All right, little background here. Now, the walk from Galilee to Jerusalem took about five days, about a five-day walk. By the way, can you imagine traveling? Like, can you imagine having to move around like that? Like, we go, okay, oh my goodness, we're out of eggs. I got to go to Publix. Like, five-minute drive, two-minute drive, whatever that is. Can you imagine, oh, I'm out of eggs. I got to take a three-day journey to go get some eggs. Like, I don't know. Anyway, took about five days. And they were heading down to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. They're up in the north in Galilee. They're heading south, so they're going down to Jerusalem. I know the text says they went up, but remember why that is. Jerusalem is a city on the hill. So whenever someone goes to Jerusalem, you're always climbing, always going up. John brought us this next sign because he was with Jesus, and he saw how the whole thing went down. So here here we come. John chapter 5, verse 2. Now, there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda. By the way, there's a hospital up in Delray called Bethesda. That's why, okay? Called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Now, I just want you to take a look at the detail here. And it's the detail here that points to the fact that John's talking about a real journey and talking about a real place that he really went to. So now I'm going to add on verse 3. Here, a great number of disabled people used to lie. So there is in Jerusalem a sheep gate. It is called Bethesda. It is surrounded by five colonnades, but people don't lie there anymore when he wrote this. They used to lie here. Okay, so you got that? Now, look at the specificity with which John described those disabled people, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. Now, you could probably make a guess that these are some of the most desperate people of his day. And remember that during those days, medicine, if it was available at all, was pretty primitive. Put a leech on that, go bleed that out. I mean, that was, that was pretty much it. And doctors were pretty scarce. And also, and this is interesting, there was a Roman law governing Jerusalem that forbade doctors from examining dead bodies. Doctors were not allowed to touch dead bodies, which meant that if a person looked too far gone and there was a doctor there, that doctor's not going near that person. That doctor's going to stay far, far away. You don't want to get crosswise with the Roman authorities. So essentially, only the wealthy had access to doctors, and the rest of society had to depend upon rumors and superstition. Oh, I heard there's a healer over there. I heard if you stand on one foot and close one eye and hop up and down, you'll get better. Like That's what they had to depend upon to have any hope of ever getting better. And this story is actually based upon that kind of superstition. So in that day, there was a well-known pool called Bethesda. Everybody knew about it. And according to the legend, every so often, an angel would come along, an invisible angel, and the angel would stir up that pool. And whoever was the first person to enter into the water, when the water was stirred up, that person would be healed. That was the rumor. Now, it's interesting, in the late 1800s, roughly almost 2,000 years after that, and then continuing into the late 1900s, for the next 100 years, the pool was found and excavated. They, They took out all the dirt. 
And they found that that pool was sitting on top of a natural spring, a natural source, which, by the way, meant that it was a Jewish ritual bath that was used for the ceremony called mikvah because a Jewish ritual bath had to be spring-fed, had to be naturally fed. So it could be a lake, it could be an ocean, but it could be a spring-fed source as well. It was a Jewish ritual bath. It's probable then that when the natural spring would occasionally bubble, bubble up, as natural springs do, if you've ever been to Ginny Springs up in North Florida, they kind of have these holes, and the holes kind of shoot new water into the spring, and the bubbles come up. Well, you would see those bubbles on the surface of the water, and you wouldn't know what it was back then. That's how the legend was born, that an angel came along and stirred the water, and wow, something magical happened. So now picture the scene. Hundreds of disabled people, if not thousands, were lying out in the hot Judean sun every single day for as long as anyone could remember. And they're all waiting, and they're all watching the pool. It's but not like a tiny pool either. It's like a really big pool. And they're all watching the pool for a disturbance so that they could scramble to that pool, jump in, and have a chance at a normal life, have a chance at being healed. Well, now just imagine the chaos that must have ensued every time a bubble came up, right? Every time a bubble, there was a mad scramble, hundreds if not thousands of people running into this, trying to get to this pool. Just imagine these poor people with all their might. If they couldn't walk, they dragged themselves with their hands. They ran over each other, crawled over each other just to benefit from the healing powers of this legendary pool, only to be let down because it wasn't a healing pool. Okay, that's where we are. So Jesus and the boys head into this area. And it's most likely when you go to that area, you don't see healthy people. It wasn't a very nice place to be. Just imagine unattended people laying there all day, every day. Imagine what it must have sounded like. When you read the Bible, it's kind of cool to do this. You know, put yourself, try to put yourself back in those days. Just imagine what it would have sounded like. The sound of people crying and wailing, and moaning. And then the smell, imagine what it must have smelled like. It must have smelled like sweat. It must have smelled like excrement. It must have smelled like sick. It must have really been horrible. It just sort of hung over that whole place. It was not a pleasant place to be. And it's likely that healthy people would only go into that crowd to remove dead bodies. And Jesus and the disciples went there. And they happened upon a man. So we go to John chapter 5, verse 5. A man who was there, he'd been there as an invalid for 38 years. 38 years, nearly 40 years. So John wrote that Jesus saw him lying there, okay? Now, now maybe Jesus noticed him because he was one of the older people there and been lying there for 40 years. He's probably not a young guy. Or maybe He looked like a guy who just had a rough life, who'd been living in the sun his entire life. Whatever it was, Jesus must have asked about that man. And then, we go to verse 6 further, Jesus learned that the man had been in this condition for a long time. Now, in that moment, Jesus knew, okay, it's time for another sign. And with that, Jesus leans down to the man Okay, the man's on the ground. Jesus walks up. He leans down, and he asks the man, do you want to get well? Now, we spent a lot of time in this question last time we talked about the passage. That's not the point of our lesson today, but I do want to spend a second on it now because it is interesting. It seems like a strange question 
to ask somebody who spent the last 40 years going to a pool to be healed, do you want to get well? Like, that seems to me to elicit a, duh, yeah, of course I want to get well. But it's not a crazy question. Because not everybody wants to get well. Many people work harder on coming up with excuses than they do with trying to get better. Because sometimes, many times actually, getting well is much harder than staying not well. Getting well requires a lot of a person. Getting well requires that a person acknowledge that they're not well. I mean, you have to admit you have a problem, right? They have to acknowledge that. It requires you have some humility about yourself. It requires some soul-searching. It requires that you have a willingness to change. What's the old Einstein quote? A definition of insanity is you keep on doing the same thing you've always done, expecting a different result. This requires a willingness to change. It requires adopting new patterns and, and new habits. And those things are really hard to do. We all know that. We've all tried that. We've all made New Year's resolutions that last about a week. And all of those things, all those changes, all those admissions of weakness run counter to our human nature. But we all need to answer that question before God can do a work in us and God can do a work through us. And you know what? We do well to answer that question every day. Do you want to get well? As a person made in the image of God, you will honor God and you will honor yourself and you will honor the people who love you if you'll just get some help and get well. All right, mini sermon over. Where were we? Now, as it turned out, the guy had no clue who Jesus was. But he did want to get well. And here's what he answered. Sir, again, he has no clue who Jesus is. Sir, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I am trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. And again, think of it. They're not just, oh, excuse me, sir, I'm going to go in the pool ahead of you. No, they're climbing over each other. They're scrambling over each other. They're dying to get into that pool. For this guy, it had been 38 years. And you have to imagine that he was beginning to lose hope. But that tragic scene was, unbeknownst to this man, about to get completely turned around. God himself, even though he didn't know it, God himself was staring the man in the face. And the man had no idea. So this is tension building in the story. What's going to happen? What's going to happen? And Jesus leans in again and he says to the guy, get up. Get up. Now, now when you read the Greek, the translations add a little flavor to it. The Greek can be translated, wake up or rise up or come to life. Isn't that cool? That guy's lying there. Jesus says, you want to get well? He says, get up. Then get up. But what? Jesus said next is what makes this a sign and not just some random healing. Get up, pick up your mat and walk at once. The man was cured. He never got in the pool, by the way. You notice that, right? Just get up, pick up your mat and walk. Picked up his mat and he walked. There was no washing. There was no dunking. There was no bubbling water. None of that was necessary. Jesus said, walk. And the man got up and he walked. Just like that, the man was cured. Now, that is more or less where we ended things the last time we talked about this passage. But actually, it's where today's message really gets going. If we were sitting here today as an audience of observant Jews, and we watched this play out, we got watching it as a movie or something, 
when the man got up and picked up his mat and started walking, we all would have gone, (gasps) and Jesus knew that would happen. Jesus did what he did on purpose because, and here's the because, the day on which this took place was the Sabbath, okay? So it was on Saturday, all right? On the Sabbath, all around the temple, the Pharisees, remember the kind of religious cops, their practice was to patrol the area, making sure that nobody was breaking the Sabbath law. That was their job. They walked around, is anybody breaking the law? Is anybody breaking the law? The man was carrying a mat, was likely walking toward the temple. By the way, it's been at least 38 years that he's not gone to the temple. So he's walking toward the temple to give thanks to God. It's not a stretch to assume that he probably hadn't been in that temple in a very long time. But in that moment, he had something for which to be thankful, and he wanted to go in and offer a sacrifice to God. But that did not matter to the religious leaders. They saw that the man was carrying his mat, which was a no-no. So they said to him, it is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. Now, in the Torah, and remember the Torah is the Old Testament, first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Okay, that's the Old Testament. That's the Torah. That's the Hebrew Bible. In the fourth commandment, in Exodus chapter 20, verse 8, We read this, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. That's the commandment, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Now, from there, over time, rabbis and other Jewish Bible scholars continue continue to interpret and, and define the meaning of that law, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. And their interpretations of that written law became known as the oral law, which were ironically written down in works called the Talmud and the Midrash, which it's far more complicated than that. I'm kind of flying right by it here. But suffice it to say that by the time the Pharisees were there, something was read into the law. The law was embellished, and they embellished it with a prohibition of carrying anything on the Sabbath. The Pharisees believed that anybody carrying anything on the Sabbath was in violation of the fourth commandment of the Torah. But here's the thing you need to know. The point of the fourth commandment was for God's people to be able to take a break from their labors at least one day out of every week, following God's example where he created the world in six days and rested on the seventh. So God did it. That's what God wants for us. He wants us to be able to take a break from our labors one day a week. Jesus actually would clarify it later in Mark chapter 2, verse 27. He said, the Sabbath was made for man. The Sabbath is for us. The Sabbath isn't a God rule that we have to obey or else God will be really mad at us. The Sabbath is for us. It's healthy for us, not man, for the Sabbath. The fourth commandment was intended to give God's people a moment of rest, a moment away from their toil. The fourth fourth commandment was not intended in any way to move God's people away from being able to experience God's love. That's not the intent. But sadly, that's what happens oftentimes with religious people. That's what happens when we forget or we ignore the why behind the what. That's what happens When one forgoes following God 
to follow instead some theological system or some religious ideology. And candidly, that's what happens when one looks past their fealty, their loyalty to God, in order to defend something else, like a political agenda or a political movement. That's what happens when you look past your faith in God to defend something that is legally based, that is not of God. That's what happens when when one embraces anything that becomes more important than the people these laws were designed to serve and benefit. It is about the people. Tragically, sometimes... It is extremely difficult to see when it's happening to us. How do I know that? I'll tell you how I know that. Because when I, when I said what I just told you, you agreed with me in principle. But when you thought about it for a second, you started to think about what? You started to think about all the people you know who need to hear this. Usually those people are on the other side of what it is that you believe. That's what you think. You go, wow, that is true. I wish so-and-so knew that. I wish so-and-so was here. Can I get this message so I can email it to somebody? And you think that whether it, that these are people who are different from you, whether it's somebody from the other party in politics, whether it's someone from another Christian movement, another Christian church, we can all see the problem in other people. But we struggle to see it in ourselves. It's a blind spot for us. And that's why Jesus pointed out this problem in Matthew 7. How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there's a plank in your own eye, you hypocrite? So we all need to be careful not to fall into this trap. And we all need to be diligent in monitoring our own actions because when what's best for people is no longer what's important to us, in that moment, we become at odds with God. Remember what John said that we talked about last week? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, and whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to be saved, but to save the world through him. And that means that when what's best for people is no longer what's most important to us, we're at odds with God. And as a result, anything we do to hurt another person is a sin. Anything I do to distance another person from God is a sin. Any theological issue and any attempt at a scriptural application that gets in the way of somebody being treated with dignity is a sin, even if you're using the Bible to prove it. And even though, and I can do this if you like, I can take stuff out of context and I can find your words and passages that seem to justify a lot of unloving things, Jesus made it real clear that that is not what he called his people to do. So the story continues. The Pharisees said this to the man who'd just been healed. They said, it is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. See, their understanding of the law forbade the man from carrying his mat. (laughs) But the man replied, well, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. Remember, at that moment, the man didn't know who healed him, okay? He didn't know it was Jesus. He didn't know Jesus' name. He had no clue. So all he was saying is, listen, I'm carrying my mat because the man who told me or who healed me told me to pick up my mat. The man said, listen, I'm not intending to violate the Sabbath. He said, come on, you guys have been watching me for decades. Not for nothing, but you guys haven't lifted a finger during those decades to help me at all. You didn't even minister to me. In fact, all you've done is ignore me. All you've done is tell me it's my fault. All you've done is condemn me. 
telling me I deserved my affliction because it's something I must have done or something my parents did. Now think about this. At that time, the Jews believed that in addition to being guilty for your own sins, a person could be guilty of their parents' sins too. Think about your parents. You want to be guilty for their sins? That's what they believed. There was actually a theory that if a woman was pregnant and she went to a pagan temple, her child sinned along with her. If a woman was pregnant and sinned, the child was guilty of sin because the child was in the mother's womb. So the child had to pay for the mother's sin. Later on, we're going to see the disciples ask Jesus about this very belief. This is a preview. We'll get to it in a few weeks. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked, Rabbi, who sinned? They didn't say what happened. They said, who sinned? Who sinned? This man or his parents? Those are the choices. Did this man sin? Is that why he's blind? Or did his parents sin? Is that why he's blind? That's how they thought. So his whole life, the religious system convinced him that the reason he was lying there was because he or his parents did something wrong. And then along comes this strange guy who ignores all of that and out of the blue heals him. That's why the man listened to him. You would too. Well, the religious leaders followed up with the next logical question. All right, then, who's the guy? Who is this fellow who told you to pick up the mat and walk? Who is this man who defied the law and broke the Sabbath? Like they were thinking, we're going to do a two-for-one here. We're going to get two Sabbath breakers and one, one deal here, right? But the man couldn't answer. Why not? He had no clue. He said, Jesus. Jesus had slipped away into the crowd. The, the man didn't know who he was. He disappeared. And again, I think I told you this last time. I always picture the Homer Simpson meme where he's kind of backing up into the bushes, you know? That's what Jesus did. He just sort of slipped into the crowd. Now, sometime later, we don't know how much later, but sometime later, probably later that day, Jesus found the same man at the temple. Here's what Jesus says to him. Verse 14. See, you are well again. Now, here's what he says. This is weird. Now, stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Now, I want you to think about that for a second. What kind of sin did this guy commit that day? I mean, the Pharisee said he carried his mat. But what did Jesus mean by telling him, stop sinning? This is the first time the guy saw Jesus. Jesus says, stop sinning. Scholars can't figure out what that meant. When you think about it, it's kind of a puzzle, right? The guy hadn't done anything really for 40 years. Did he really live this horrible, sinful life? I don't know, probably bad thoughts or something, right? But what kind of sin was he committing? And by the way, what worse could happen to him? What worse could happen to him than lying there in the hot sun by a pool for 40 years? Andy Stanley suggests that Jesus was just being sarcastic. He's like, now stop sinning. Ha, 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 right? Pharisees said, you sinned. This guy hasn't sinned. We don't know. But one thing we can know is this. The man didn't have to worry about the religious leaders anymore. He didn't have to fear them anymore because Jesus had healed him. And when you recognize who Jesus is, you'll lose your fear of religion. And you'll lose your fear of religious people too. When you choose to follow Jesus... Religion will lose its grip on you. So, verse 15. The man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. And because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. Here they did not capture him and tie him up and throw rocks at him, but they just came after him. And then verse 17, in his defense, Jesus said to the religious leaders, My father is always at his work to this very day, and I, too, am working. Jesus said to them, God didn't take a day off. I'm just being like God. 
Now, how do you think the religious leaders reacted to hearing that? Not well. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only because he was breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Now, like this guy, he's not only working on the Sabbath, but he's saying he and God are equal. Who does he think he is? That was their biggest problem with Jesus. Who the heck did this guy think he was? And that's the big question, isn't it? Who do you think he is? That's why Jesus did what he did. He did it so that people would ask that question. And then after seeing the signs, they'd arrive at the conclusion that Jesus is God. Jesus continued, Very truly, I tell you, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his Father doing. Because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. Here Jesus is saying, you want to know what God's really like? Just watch me. You want to know what God would actually say in a circumstance like this? Just listen to me. You want to know what God would actually do in a circumstance like this? Just follow me. And the religious leaders said, to the religious leaders, Jesus also said this. He said to the Pharisees, you study the scriptures diligently. And that's what the Pharisees did. And that's what ultra-Orthodox people still do today. They study the scriptures diligently every day for hours a day. Why? Because you think that in these written words, you have eternal life. Just studying these written words. These are the very scriptures that testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Jesus said to them, listen, I know that for your whole life, Life. You've searched the scriptures because you think in those scriptures you're going to find eternal life, but you won't find eternal life in the text. You'll only find eternal life in me, Jesus said. You've opted for the written over the living. You've chosen your interpretation over me, a living demonstration. I understand that. Up until now, all you had was the text. All you had was your traditions, but no more, because the word had become flesh. That's why John starts John 1 that way. The word had become flesh. The scripture always pointed to Jesus, and that's what he told them. I'm right here. I'm standing in front of you. And if we could talk to John, here's what he'd say. He'd say, that's why I followed Jesus. That's why I believe, and that's why I'm telling you. John said, I gazed into the eyes of life, and now I understand that everything has pointed to Jesus. Today, right here, in your midst, at your holy temple, you have seen a sign. But in today's story, the religious leaders didn't see it. They simply didn't see it. In an ancient world filled with political, moral, and religious ideas and assumptions and tension, they failed to realize that God made it so simple. God showed up and he demonstrated the importance of his love for his people over everything. But when Jesus' early followers got that, they changed the world. And if you go back and look at the history of the last 2,000 years, it was the Christian movement. It was the followers of Jesus who changed the entire world. And if following Jesus' example, if you can remember everywhere you go and everywhere you are, 
that the you beside you must take priority over your potentially flawed ideas and assumptions and interpretations, must take precedence over over your potentially flawed opinions and views. If you understand that the you beside of you is more important than anything you think, our world will take note of that as well. John's gospel shows us that the living, real, flesh and blood person beside you has to take priority over the potentially flawed view that you carry around inside of you. The people around you who are made in the image of God have to take priority over your ever-changing views. Now, you can say, wait a minute, hold on, sounds like you're slipping into libertinism, sounds like you're getting all touchy-feely, promise you I'm not. Are there things that are absolute that never change? Yes, there are, absolutely. God is absolute and never changes. We, on the other hand, we're not absolute and we change. And our opinions are not absolute, they change. We change our our beliefs all the time. Our beliefs evolve and change constantly. We believe things yesterday that embarrass us today. And for those of you who are around my vintage, think of some of the things you believed when you were 21, 22, 18. Think about that. Do you still believe those things today? Some of them, not all of them. When we read the Gospels, Jesus shows us something really clear. We almost always know what love requires of us. And if you're ever wondering what to do, always ask, what does love require of you? And if you know that, that's enough. So as we wrap up today, I want everyone to ponder this question. Does your version of religion or societal issues or politics get in the way of loving the people that God loves? Because if it does, you are at odds with God, and that is not where you want to be. John, toward the end of his life, a life in which he'd seen magnificent triumphs and major tragedies. At a time that John was kind of living out the end of his days, he was alone, he was exhausted, but he told us that he was with God in the flesh. He told us that he was with God the Son. He told us that he saw firsthand that God is love. He wrote about it in 1 John 4. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. And it follows that when you get on the wrong side of love, you're on the wrong side of God. And if your version of religion or your version of societal issues or politics or anything else gives you permission to mistreat a person made in God's image, you are on the wrong side. And it's my hope that today's lesson has given us all we need to recenter ourselves on God's agenda. As Jesus said in John 13, 34, And those of you who caught this last week, I had written John 5 because I made a mistake. So there you go. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, by loving one another, just as Jesus loved us, everyone will know that you are my disciples. He adds it in one more time for emphasis, if you love one another. And it's my prayer that we can all leave here today with a renewed enthusiasm for that command with which our Lord Jesus left us so the world can see and hear Jesus in us and then run to him as well. Amen?
Let's pray. Father God, thank you again for this time together. Thank you for this word that is just so powerful. God, in our world, it's so easy to forget about this. It's so easy to call out laws and rules and notice how people aren't following them and to hate other people who we find are different or even persecuting us. But God, we know the command. He told us to love even our enemies. And though that's not easy, we know that you did it for us. God, we thank you for this. We ask that this scripture, that these words dig into our hearts and change us from the inside out. We thank you, God, for all that you do. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.